being like that, we actually encourage one another. We encourage one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the echoing of praise is aimed at God, and the reverberating effect within our hearts is encouragement. And I want to say again, I am just, I'm so encouraged uh, by the way that God continues to sustain us as a singing congregation, uh, not as an observing congregation, but as a singing congregation. This morning, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Before we get to our study, as you know, part of our uh, annual rhythm when it comes to the missions conference is to give our offering of praise. And the goal for this year was to give $36,000 for various projects to help a couple of missionaries uh, and to help a couple of things that we want to accomplish here, including uh, a, a chairlift for the, sec- for the second floor of our educational building. And uh, I want to report that to you, first of all, by saying that in the 11 years that I have been here, we have never, the Lord has never, by His grace, enabled us to give like this. Never. That you would have to go back, and I asked Brian McKenzie um, how far you'd have to go back to find this, and he said, pretty far, which is technical. I mean, that's a long way. So, but that's all right. I mean, he couldn't remember the time, but the congregation was at kind of a peak, I think, during under probably Pastor Lockwood when an offering of praise. But per person that was actually giving, this is certainly the most that we have ever given. So our offering goal was 36,000, and by God's grace, we gave $53,498. Yeah. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. Amen. What a blessing it is to be able to give. Those of you who give, you know that. It's such a blessing to be able to give. And so typically more monies uh, come in even after we set the deadline. And so when there's an update on that number, we'll make sure to communicate it. But I uh, wanted to, for us to celebrate that together. That's worth celebrating, isn't it? It is. Uh, it's worth celebrating with fried biscuits and apple butter, but we had to, we had to forgo that this year <clears throat> due to the disease that shall not be named among us. So, <laughs> this morning we begin a new series of studies But before we actually get to the text, I just wanted to be reminded that God's call on us as Christians is to be distinct from the world. We are distinct in what we believe. We are distinct in how we teach. We are distinct in how we live. We must not be conformed to this world. But we are to live lives that are transformed. We have been transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So just consider the world around you. Consider the world around us. Consider its condition. Consider the moral chaos 
in which we live. That the only thing at this point in our culture that seems to be sinful is to call something sinful. This is the great sin. Where self-constructed, the self-constructed morality of each individual is the final word. And any word that contradicts that word is at best disrespectful and at worst hate speech. Even if that contrary word, or especially if that contrary word, is God's word. Consider the deep division in our culture. Nobody has to convince you of this, does it? But it's not purely a philosophical division. It's not even, rightly said, a political division. But one of the things that has really come to the surface is the intensely personal nature of the division. Where even a presidential debate isn't marked by the clear presentation of policies or even general respect for one's opponent, but the lasting memory of the event, the event that which gets tweeted and, uh, uh, you know, soundbited and reported more than anything are the personal attacks and the childish behavior. Just so you know, those men represent us. They are not removed from our culture. They represent what we've dissolved into. And Christians are not to follow these kinds of patterns. We are to live differently, and what is true of us individually must also be true of us collectively. The church is not meant to reflect its culture, the cultural values of the day. It is not to reflect the national values of the day. The church is meant to reflect and must reflect the kingdom to which it belongs. We are citizens of heaven, first, foremost, and permanently. We are citizens of any given nation, secondarily and temporarily. There will be no flags in heaven. There will only be Christ. So this church, this body of believers, this family of faith, this community, if you will, is, is called to be different in how we speak to one another, how we care for one another, how we treat one another, how we serve one another, the things at which our, our, our community is aimed, the way that we love one another. We are meant to be different from the community around us. We are meant to stand out, to be peculiar people, not because we are quirky, but because we are holy. Because we are set aside to the purposes of God. So with that in mind, we're going to take the next ten weeks to think about what the Bible says about living together as a church. And in these weeks, one phrase will appear over and over and over again. And that phrase is one another. 
The Bible tells us how to one another in the church, if I can use that as a verb. If you won't give me license to use that as a verb, please direct all complaints to Chad this week, all right? But the Bible tells us how to one another as a church. And this morning we begin with a foundational text here in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, a letter that was likely meant to circulate to other congregations. It's got a very the the, the book the the letter to Colot to the Colossians is very similar. In fact, the text we're going to read, if you just want to write down Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13, you'll find some very similar language there, though we won't go to it this morning. But we're going to look at the first six verses, and most specifically the first three verses. And the point here is that being called to Jesus means being called to one another. Being called to Jesus means being called to one another. This is not everything it means, but this is, in fact, part of what it means to be called to Jesus. So let's read these first six verses. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. If you're using a pew Bible and haven't found it yet, it's on page 977. And this is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us. Oh, sorry. That's verse 7. That would help make a whole new series of sermons. We're just going to stop right there. You, You would like to go home today, I assume. So, we won't do that. Being called to Jesus, though... Is means being called to one another. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help <clears throat> as we look at these verses. Our Father, it is our desire to hear, to understand your words. We cannot do that without your help, and so we ask for your Spirit. I pray that your Spirit will empower me in these moments to speak according to your words so that your truth is communicated, so that your words are the words that we hear and remember and love. I pray that by your Spirit all of us will have open ears and open hearts to hear and receive your word with joy, with gladness, and with hearts ready to obey. We pray it all for the sake and in the name of Jesus. Amen. So when we think about being called to Jesus means being called to one another, there's kind of a, there's a progression in these verses that helps me get to that as the main point, all right? And here's the progression. The progression are the two headings that we will use to work through this passage. First, being called to Jesus, call, the call to Jesus is the call to live for Jesus, 
Being called to Jesus means being called to live for Jesus. One word actually helps us to know that. One word. And it's the second word in the ESV translation. It is the word, therefore. Therefore is a word of connection. It connects the things that were said before to the statement that's about to be made. Therefore means that based on everything I've said to this point, therefore this is what must be true. Paul's command about how we are to live, which we will get to, doesn't stand alone. It's not on an island. It stands on everything that's come before chapter 4. And Paul sums it up actually in verse 1 here as the calling to which you have been called. The calling to which you have been called. Now that may be a confusing phrase for you because we speak about calling in a different way most of the time than the Bible speaks about the word calling. We talk about calling when it comes to things like vocation. So you may have a sense of calling to your vocation. Uh, We talk about people, wow, somebody is calling, all right? (laughs) So, (laughs) look, Look, some phone sounds you can ignore, and others are trumpets blowing right in your ear, all right? I will have to call them back, all right? So, but usually when we talk about calling, we're talking about some special calling that's maybe only experienced by some Christians. So we talk about the calling to pastoral ministry or the calling to be a missionary and these kinds of things. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about some people who have a calling to particular things. This is a more general calling. This actually applies to every single Christian. Okay? It is that sweet and gracious call of God that actually made us His people, that brought us to Him. Not, say, the public general call of the gospel, which is repent and believe, but the secret, internal, effectual call of God that brought us to Christ and made us His Okay? So think in terms of a military draft where there are no loopholes. Except what you're being called to is not military service. It is a call to eternal life. It is a call to hope. It is a call to joy. Some of you would actually testify that before you came to Jesus, you were running. You were running. You were hiding. You were going anywhere else in the world And all of a sudden, you couldn't get away from God. That's the kind of thing. That's the thing that he's talking about here. You may have tried to dodge the draft, as it were, but God's grace found you. And aren't you glad he found you? The calling to which you have been called. And as I said, actually this phrase sums up everything in chapters 1 to 3. We're going to just take a bird's eye view so we know exactly what we're talking about. In chapter 1, Paul says that in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And he lists a number of these from verses 3 to 14. The blessing of election, 
that God has called, chose us before the foundation of the world to be His people, to be holy and blameless before Him. The blessing of adoption. You see, prior to Christ, we were spiritual orphans living in the orphanage called sin. And the Bible says we were children, actually, of the devil. But in love, God predestined to come and rescue us and make us His children. The blessing of election, the blessing of adoption, the blessing of redemption. We were slaves to sin, but God set us free. He bought us back through the blood of Jesus Christ. The blessing of a heavenly inheritance, that the reward that Jesus has earned for us in His death and resurrection waits for us at the end of life. And the blessing of the Holy Spirit who seals us as belonging to God, who guarantees that the promised inheritance will be there when we get there. He's the guarantee. All these blessings, we, we did a whole series just on these blessings a few years ago. But this is what God says, is, is that it, this is what Paul is thinking about in his mind when he says, therefore, he's talking about based on all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, therefore. And then chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, in Christ God has made us alive. Spiritually, we were dead in our sin. We were unable to give ourselves life. We couldn't give ourselves CPR to wake ourselves up out of death. We were unable to please God. In fact, Paul says we were children of wrath by nature. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We've been saved not because of our works, but because of God's grace. And it is God's grace that has come and made us alive. As certainly as Lazarus was alive once Jesus called for him to come out, you and I are alive when God calls us to Himself. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. In Christ, God has brought us together. No matter what socioeconomic barriers may keep us from one another, humanly speaking, I mean, no matter what keeps us apart, humanly speaking, Christ tore down the barriers in the cross. Chapter 2, verse 14. He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Friends, the Christian can never say that there are barriers between human beings that cannot be torn down. The Christian can never say that. If the barrier in the ancient world between Jew and Gentile, which is the barrier he is specifically talking about here, has been brought down, then there is no barrier that stands a chance when it comes to the power of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. No barrier stands a chance. And the Christian who says, well, we'll just all, it's just always going to be there, 
This is not a statement that indicates the power of the barrier. It actually indicates the power of unbelief in the Christian's heart. To say it will always be there. It always must be there. We just live with it. That's just not the case. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God has made us alive. God has brought us together. And then in chapter 3, in Christ, as one family, we glorify God. This coming together across all these barriers in Christ, into one household, being built together, chapter 3 tells us that this is an echo of a testimony of God's glory that echoes through the whole cosmos. God's glory goes out to all the rulers and authorities, Paul says here. And those rulers and authorities are actually, when you get to chapter 6, they're not just generic rulers and authorities. These are the ones who are opposing God and His purposes. And so the victorious purposes of God are echoing throughout the universe right now because the church exists. You remember what Jesus said about the church, right? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The testimony of the glory of God and His great wisdom and His power echoes to rulers and authorities, and it will forever, forever and ever. It's a pretty grand picture of the calling to which we've been called, isn't it? God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. God has made us alive. God has brought us together. Even now, the work of God in us is a radiating testimony of His wisdom and glory throughout all things and the assured testimony of His victory over every ruler and authority that would ever oppose Him. That's what you've been called to. That's what I've been called to. Therefore, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy. Now, to be clear, there is no manner of life that we can produce that will make us worthy, that will earn the salvation of God. That is not what is meant here by walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Our salvation is a gift of God's grace. There is only one whoever earned the commendation of God, whoever walked in a manner that demonstrated His worthiness, and that is Jesus Christ. And through faith in Him, His perfect righteousness is imputed to us. It is credited to our spiritual bank account so that we stand before God absolutely righteous in the righteousness of Christ. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we were worthy. He died for us to show He is worthy. And then He calls us to walk in a a manner worthy. Well, what what is that then? Well, it's a response to the salvation. The word worthy here is a word that refers to balancing scales. It was actually, would have been used in the marketplace. So if you go to the marketplace in the ancient world and you want to buy some figs, all right? You put the figs on one side of the scale and then you put your coins on the other side of the scale, that which you're paying, and the weight, you remember ancient coinage was by weight, 
That's what those measurements are. So it was, you have the weight of what you're paying here. When it balances, you know what those figs are worth. It balances. It demonstrates the worth of the figs to put the coins on the other side. The same is actually true in our lives. Our lives as Christians should reveal what the salvation that we have received is worth. The weightiness of the eternal purposes of God breaking into the world and then breaking into our lives and changing everything forever. The beauty of Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ. Our lives are meant to be a demonstration that Jesus is worthy. We're to walk in a manner worthy of that calling to which we've been called. Being called to Jesus means being called to live for Jesus. It is the logical consequence of being a Christian. There there aren't the Christians who are only believing, and then there are the Christians who are believing and living for Jesus. You understand? If there is not faith in Jesus Christ and the fruit of a life that is pursuing pursuing holiness and producing fruit that shows the pursuit of holiness, there is no real assurance that the one who just says, I believe, actually believes. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. It's interesting. This is something that I, I haven't really... I mean, I've thought about this text a lot over the years, but something that I had not thought about until really this week was the fact that some people love to focus on the first half of Ephesians. Like, they just... They love the doctrine. Give me the doctrine. Stimulate my mind with the doctrine. Let's talk about it. Let's argue it. Let's write it. Let's read it. I'll read every book there is on Ephesians 1 to 3. Let's get our minds around the doctrine. And then there's a whole other group of people who are enraptured by Ephesians 4 to 6. They are so concerned with living holy lives, with having healthy churches, with having healthy families. The problem is, is when we act like the book of Ephesians ends at the end of chapter 3. And the other problem is when we act like the book of Ephesians really doesn't get going until the beginning of chapter 4. These go together. Do you want to stimulate your own, do you want to stimulate your own commitment to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Do you want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling? Yes or no? Do you want to stimulate yourself? Do you want the Holy Spirit to stimulate you to do that? Then you better study Ephesians 1 to 3. You better understand what God has done for you in Christ because according to Paul, the only way that a life lived for Jesus will be what happens is as a logical consequence of wrapping our mind around all that God has done for us in Christ. If all we do is walk around and tell one another, well, you need to change your walk, 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 it very, very quickly goes off the cliff into legalism. The 
living. Being called to Jesus means being called to live for Jesus. But then the second step in this progression is that living for Jesus means living with one another. So, Paul, you know, you imagine you're having a Q&A with Paul, right? He's up front and he's just said, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Hand goes up. What do you want us to do, Paul? What's that look like? Well, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, in a very real sense, the entire second half of Ephesians explains what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. But it begins here. First of all, with humility. Humility is not belittling self. It is seeing self properly as small. And it's a perspective that we have actually both in relationship to God and in relationship to other people. So 1 Peter 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. So Peter says, clothe yourselves in humility toward one another and humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You know what, hum- you know what humility does? Humility walks into any room and sees God as the most significant person in the room and sees others as more significant than me. And the specific room that Paul is talking about is this kind of room when the church gathers. I mean, so how do you how do you come to the gathering of the church? How do you come? Have you ever considered whether you come to the gathering of God's people with humility? Have you ever thought about that? I think most of us would be on the same page to say, well, we know when we gather the, the, the most significant one in the room is God. But I wonder as we look around to those that we know well and to those we don't know as well, would we say that in my eyes, they are more significant than I am? Friends, that's what humility does. Paul says it in Philippians 2, verse 3. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do you realize how countercultural that is to walk into every room? Believing that God is the most significant one in the room, and all I, I consider all of you more significant than me. I am here to serve you. That is a radical way of thinking that cannot be found apart from the work of the Spirit of God in your life and in my life. How do you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called? With humility. That's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. 
Next is gentleness. It's a disposition toward others. It's one of the fruit of it's part of the fruit of the spirit. Gentleness is mildness. Gentleness is even-tempered. Gentleness is worthy of our calling in Christ because Christ himself was gentle. In Matthew 11, he says, "I am gentle and lowly in heart." Gentleness is a godly response to circumstances that don't go the way I'd like them to. And it's a godly response to people who don't act like I would expect. This is over against, by the way, sinful responses like unrighteous anger or verbal sparring. So that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, when, when Paul is giving Timothy instruction about his opponents, he tells him particularly that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, right? But when he has to correct, you know how he's supposed to do it? Correct them with gentleness. And the same thing is said to Titus, essentially, in Titus chapter 3, verse 2. When Peter calls on us to set apart Christ as Lord and be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us, he's not looking for us to get harsh and angry. Do you know what he says to do? Do it with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter chapter 3 Verse 15. And then James, after he says that anger does not produce the righteousness of God, instead he calls on his readers to receive with meekness or gentleness the implanted word. Do you know you never have to try to be gentle when everything's going great? Look, when when these babies are just sleeping in your arms, am I right? That baby just sleeping on your chest. You don't have to try to be gentle, do you? It's like, ooh. It's just wonderful. It's just glorious. When that baby will not stop because of colic, because of illness, because of teething, because of whatever, that is where you, the thoughts... That's where gentleness should be expressed. Gentleness is actually revealed or revealed to be absent when things don't go the way we would want them to go. The same is actually true of patience, which is the next one. It means long-suffering. Think of it this way. Patience is basically like extended gentleness. You don't, you're not just, patience never is just for one moment, right? You don't actually believe the customer service people who use the phrase brief hold, do you? (laughs) Can I place you on a brief hold? And then you wonder what month it is when they get back on the phone. Patience is extended gentleness. It is responding in even-tempered mildness over an extended period of time. So there'll be situations that test you. People who test you. But do you know what helps us to be patient? Do you know what helps me to be patient? When I remember how patient the Lord has been with me. When Peter was writing to Christians in 2 Peter 3, he writes this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Think of, think of God's patience before you came to Christ. How many years did you resist Him? How many years did you kick against the goads? How many people did you tell to stop talking about Jesus in your life? How many times did you tune out when the gospel of Jesus was being preached? And yet, He was patient. Think of God's patience with you as a Christian, right? How slow we are to learn, to grow, to change. How you can be such an obstinate child. How you keep falling back into the same sin so that it's like three steps forward and two steps back or sometimes two steps forward and three steps back. And yet He is patient. He who began a good work in you will complete it. You know what that will take? Patience, because we're not running for the finish line. There's a... (laughs) There's a lady in our neighborhood that walks her dogs, and that's, uh, I mean, there are plenty of ladies that walk their dogs, but there's a particular lady, she's a nurse, and she walks her two rather large dogs every day, at least twice a day. But when you, if you were to look at her, it doesn't look like she's walking the dogs. It looks like the dogs are walking her, because she has both leashes in her hand, and she's actually walking, leaning back against the force of the dogs pulling do you know that's how we typically grow? I mean, we would glad that we, we still tend to lean back against the forward progress that God would bring. But God's not going to give up. He's got you clutched in His hand. And He is patient. He is patient, and that extended gentleness, that continual extension of mercy from the Lord is not only a gift to enjoy, but it is a pattern to follow so that we truly walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We are humble, we are gentle, we are patient. Next, bearing with one another. This is akin to patient, except this particular verb emphasizes the fact that there's suffering going on. There are times that these qualities that you're seeking to grow in will not be reciprocated. It will be hard, but you bear with that brother. You bear with that sister. It'll take your energy, but bear with. It'll take your time, more time than you could have ever allotted, but bear with. It'll take resources, but bear with. That person may knowingly or unknowingly take advantage of you. But bear with. How are we to do that? How are we to endure with someone when it's that kind of painful response? Well, Paul tells us, doesn't of all these things, he tells us, he he qualifies how we ought to bear with one another. We ought not to grin and bear it. You know what that phrase means, right? You're like grinding your teeth inside a smile. I'm so patient right now, you know. No, no, no. He says, bearing with one another in love. In love.
The ideas of pain and love coming together should take our minds to the Lord Jesus, His love for us, to the fact that His love was actually demonstrated by His bearing up under the pain of the cross for us. And we are to walk in a manner worthy of that. When the problems that our friends around us have that we want to help with, when they are marathon interventions and not sprints, we are to bear with them. Parents, you may be struggling with one or more of your children in some particular place that they are at because they are slow to believe. They are slow to come around. They are being slow to obey. They are, and it is painful. It is breaking your heart week after week as you see this in them. Bear with them in love. Do not give up being gentle. Do not give up being patient. Aren't you glad Jesus never gave up with you? Bear with one another in love. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 13 tells us Love endures all things. Last one, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now this is not just any kind of unity. This is not just a feeling that we're after. The unity in the Spirit is actually expressed and explained in verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's the only other time in the whole New Testament that Greek word for unity is used. What is spiritual unity? It's not when we all have warm fuzzies together. It's when we all have the same grip on the same faith and the same Lord. That's why all of these things that come afterwards are doctrinal realities that we must cling to. Got that? Listen, there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You want the unity of the Spirit? Stay gripped together on these fundamental things. Unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, I won't spend any more time there, but just review the list real quick. Humility, gentleness, patience, Bearing with one another, unity, fighting for unity, eager to maintain it. Do you know what all those have in common? You can't do them on your own. Oh, you can be humble toward God, but you can't be humble toward other people. You have to actually be around other people to be humble toward them. You can't be gentle when people don't do what you would expect unless you're around people who aren't going to do what you expect. You can't grow in these on your own. You can't read enough books to make to drive these down into your heart. Do you know the way that God grows us in these? He's going to put you in a relationship with somebody else and something's going to happen and it's going to peel back the fact that, oh, I don't bear with anybody in love. Then This really shows me. He's going to put you in a situation where your patience, your lack of patience is exposed. He is going to graciously do all of that because He who began a good work in you will complete it. 
You cannot, you cannot, you cannot obey these things apart from other people. I, used, I, tell, I tell young couples who are getting married, I tell them, look, when I, before I got married, I was pretty sure I was not a selfish guy. And then I got married. And Susan was not out to get me. She was not out to expose me. But just living in relationship with another human being was used by God to expose the selfishness in my heart. The Christian life cannot be lived in isolation. A biblical walk with Christ cannot be done alone. Paul sets the Christian life in the context of the local church. This is part of the reason that the balance of the New Testament would tell us that we do not simply go to church. We belong to the church. We're not simply looking for the latest, greatest thing that we can go and I'm going to go here and then go there and then go there and go there. No, 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 no. You and I must belong. You're not even meant to just go to the same place over and over and over again. You're meant to belong. You're meant to commit yourself to other people and they are committed to you. We are members one of another. So do you want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Without one anothering, we won't. Dear friends, be committed to one another. Being called to Jesus means being called to one another. Be committed to one another. And be committed to one anothering. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow and are so thankful that You did not save us to live this life alone. That not only did You call us to Yourself, You called us together in the church. And we pray that You will give us grace to see that connection. That because You've called us to Yourself, You call us to live holy lives. And because You've called us to live holy lives, You've called us to do it in relationship to one another. Lord, we pray that we would never be comfortable with isolation. We would never be comfortable with separation from Your body. Help us to never simply resign ourselves to be going to church. Give us conviction to belong to one another so that we might obey You and grow in how we one another. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.